it's not a problem and it doesn't require fixing. Aging is a continuum. It's a process on which we embark the day we're born. It's not just something annoying that old people do. And the sooner we can at least accept it and ideally embrace it, then we step off the hamster wheel of age denial. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every week we talk about something that can create a little bit more love and expansion, a little bit more liberation in our mind, body and spirit. So Saturday, I was out dancing my little patootie off until three o'clock in the morning at a giant party in San Francisco at the Regency Ballroom. And I was out with my guy, and he was wearing these silver dragon leggings that matched his silver and white beard. And I was wearing this white dress and an ostrichy headdress thing. And we were laughing and boogieing down. Even the fact that I said boogieing down gives you a sense of my age. And this young couple comes up to us, and let's call them not young now that I've talked to Ashton. This fresh-faced, high-energy, smooth-skinned young couple Bah, couple comes up to us and they say, we want to be like you when we're old. <laughs> and I was like, old, what are you talking about? Uh, no, I, I was thinking about the sense that I'm still in my body I, in the same way that I used to be. I really love my life. I don't feel there's any difference. And yet there's this conception of what it means to be a certain age. So Ashton has written an entire book on this. Uh, called This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. She is the co-founder of the Old School Anti-Ageism Clearinghouse and speaks on the TED main stage, not a TEDx, but the actual main stage and the United Nations. And she's become a leading spokesperson for the emerging movement to raise awareness of ageism and to dismantle it. So I wonder if we can imagine a world where you weren't worried about getting older when you were young and as you progressed through your life stages, really didn't bother you. Could we stop oppressing ourselves? So she begins with a conversation on how all the isms are related to one another. Ashton Applewhite of This Chair Rocks. I read that you're, you know, on your site that you're an activist uh, for a lot of kinds of isms, like you're a stand for justice in the world. Would you agree with that? I hope I am. Uh, it has become increasingly apparent to me, uh, and I'm learning more about slowly and painfully and awkwardly about how to act differently and not just talk about it, about the need to support every movement for social justice. I will say that the pandemic and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter over the last two years were a real um I could say kick in the pants or perhaps gentle hands on my shoulders helping me um, in that direction. You know, I'm sure your listeners know about intersectionality, you know, that idea that all these different forms of oppression and discrimination compound and inform each other, but so do different forms of activism, right? When we, when we chip away at any form of prejudice, we chip away at the fear and ignorance that underlie them all. And not, I mean, never a good idea to lift one ism and get up, you know, compare it to another, but everyone ages. And when we make the world a better place to grow old in or anticipate growing old in, it's a better world in which to be female, in which to have a disability, in which to be marginalized in any way. 
Yeah, this idea that you examine your underlying beliefs and stop seeing people through some sort of preconceived filter, start to see them as the individual in front of you seems to be mutually beneficial. I actually don't think they necessarily knew what intersectionality was. I really appreciate that definition, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. So ageism. My company is basically started for women who are 38 and up going through perimenopause, menopause. So it's a biological kind of age targeted demo. But now I'm speaking to people, they're about 30% of the people who listen to the show are, are in male bodies. And then it's a much broader range of ages than I expected. And we try to cover sort of how to create more freedom in your ideas first, you know, in your mind, and then more freedom in your sensuality, your sexuality, the choices you make in your life. And there is, seems to be so much fear in younger people about getting older, self-judgment and self-limitation and people who are sort of in their midlife. And then, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how it affects the, our older our older listeners, but maybe you could speak a little bit to how age is impacting the individual self-perception, and then we can move into more social things. Of course, that answer, as you really just indirectly referenced, is completely individual. Every, every newborn is unique, obviously, but 17-year-olds have way more in common biologically, developmentally, cognitively, socially than 37-year-olds who are way more alike than 57-year-olds. We have this crazy idea that you, you, know, you become old whatever, you know, with air quotes around old, and then everyone sort of shuffles around in leisure wear or whatever, when, you know, all stereotypes are wrong and stupid, but not stupid, but, you know, misinformed. My, my eight-year-old grandson says, Grand, don't use that word stupid. And he's right, but they are misinformed. But especially when it comes to aging, because the longer we live, the more different from one another we become. So my experience, I'm about to turn 70. My experience of being 69 and 9 tenths is not like anyone else's experience of being that. I have a friend who's blind and he says, I'm not blind the way anyone else is blind. But you, you said something that really um, resonated with me that things happen in your mind first, of course. This is true of all social change. We all are biased. We're all shaped by our, you know, where, where we live, where we grew up, our personal experiences, the work we've done or haven't done, et cetera, et cetera. And the most important step in any of this, any, in any addressing any bias is to think about our own attitudes, in this case, towards age and aging. And in American culture, we are barraged with negative messages about age and aging from childhood on starting with children's books in Disney movies. So at any point along the way, I mean, I have a bunch of younger friends who think differently about getting older because that happens to be when they bumped into what I had to say about it. There are lots of older people who are terrified of getting older because they haven't stopped to think about where those messages about how awful it's all gonna be come from and what purpose they serve. But you know what? Ask anyone, no matter how terrified they are, whether they want to be young again, and everyone's face lights up for a second. And then when they think about it, they're like, no, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you, you know, most people, frankly, I've only met two people who said no, would not want to erase the slate. You don't get to just like swap out, you know, get new cartilage, because we know that our years are what make us us. Yeah, I know. My answer to that is this is I'm in my mid 50s. It's the best time of my life so far. And I think it's because of what you said, that as I get older, I become more and more myself. My unique experiences compound. And I know 
what I want more. And, and because I've been committed to a growth mindset, the level of freedom in my inner life is, you know, phew. I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I had tons of babies at home and I was just, you know, over my skis with obligation and living a script. Now I get to live more in choice. But yeah, I would go for the cartilage. And also for women, for women, it also can be really liberating to be sort of freed up from this more, you know, to some degree from messages of what we should look like and should wear. Um, what you said reminded me of the epigraph to my book, which is a quote by the writer Anne Lamott. We contain all the ages we have ever been. Yeah, we're all our ages at once. I could go back and think about, and and, and yesterday I went to watch a high school musical production of Footloose. And I had a moment in there where I could remember both being on the stage so awkward and weird in a high school musical and watching my own children do theirs and the pride of all the parents. And now like sort of the neighborhood person who stops in to root the children on and they were all available in that moment. I, I got quite teary-eyed. <laughs> it's a beautiful, you know, there are real losses associated with growing older, but only two are inevitable for one thing. You know, cognitive decline is not inevitable. Most of us experience some loss of function when it comes to remembering the name of the movie you saw with what's her name, but that's all we experience. It doesn't mean that you're gonna have Alzheimer's by next Tuesday. The point is that aging is also a hugely enriching process. You just described one aspect of that. So why don't we ever hear you know, the other side of the story, I can go on about that. But the only two inevitable bad things are you are going to lose physical function in some way. And you're going to lose people you've known all your life. But if you make new friends, you know, there's a way to, to compensate for that. It's not the same as losing a dear friend who's known you since you were three. But you know, it doesn't consign us to loneliness and obligate and uh, isolation if we continue to reach out, which is not easy in an age segregated society. But there are remedies, right, if we're conscious about it. And uh, yeah, it's also this enriching process too. We can we have access to all. We don't just wake up old someday and everything's gone to hell. We continue to have access to all our experiences that make us us. Let's talk about growing wiser, not older. I think wisdom is really rare. Stereotypes can be benevolent as well as uh, malicious. And I, um, a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I have met lots of older people who don't seem to have learned much along the way. And we have all met that wise child, you know, with a shiver. You know, one thing age absolutely confers is experience and access to a bigger body of lived experience. And in some people, that does translate to wisdom. And I, I think you'll find more wisdom among older people than younger people, because hopefully some of us have learned along the way. But I think it's better in general to use the word experienced, because I don't think wisdom is, you know, necessarily accrues to with uh, growing older. Yeah, you can be a good observer and have a lot of experience and still draw the wrong conclusions from it or or interpret it to reinforce what you already knew. So that's good that we got that out of the way. I, I have to say, I never thought of this piece about losing friends. Can we dive a little deeper into this idea of expanding your circle of friends and staying friends with a broad range of people and making new friends as you age? It's very much the same lesson 
um, of, think about you know, analogous to what we gain if we have friends of different gender identities, if we have friends of different races and ethnicity. The more diverse our cohort, the harder it is to hang on to the preconceived ideas, which we all have, no judgment. Most bias is unconscious. But when we see someone, you know, fixed notions about what their color or their body size or whoever they're sleeping with, you know, click into place. The more diversity we have, the harder it is to, to hang on to those stereotypes, right? A huge challenge here is the age segregated nature of Western society in general, American society in particular. Up to the turn of the 20th century, most Americans didn't even know how old they were. They, they went to school in one room classes. There was less higher ed and higher ed is a hugely age segregating experience if you think about it especially if you go on you know not to knock higher ed but it has a huge um, function of arguably even into our 30s of really cementing a same age cohort in general i think that will change as education becomes more older people friendly, which is happening as the nature of work changes from you learn one thing and you do that thing and then you retire to constantly needing to be retrained and learning new things. But it is incredibly important to have friends of all ages, easier said than done. But one way to do it is to think of something you'd like to do and find an age mixed group to do it with. You can also be more intentional about it and start a conversation group or a consciousness raising group around age. I guarantee you will have plenty to talk about because no one's, you know, not that many people are talking about this stuff yet. And a short plug for a website called the Old School Anti-Ageism Clearinghouse, oldschool.info. Everything on it is free except the books, and you can find um, consciousness raising guides there, free, downloadable, customize them, you know, suggestions on how you might want to meet up or do it your own way. But when it's incredibly important to be around older people, and I would say even especially women, I'm a little biased in this way, but I just think their, you know, ageism and sexism intersect in a really toxic way. And when Older women are around younger women. We are reminded of how hard it is to be young and are a little more generous, I think, and kind maybe. And if younger women did more hanging out with older women and saw how much we enjoy being the age we are and the power and confidence that it confers, we'd realize like, whoa, these messages that want us to feel inferior and crappy and ugly, they're, they're, not, they're not good for us, that's for sure. Where do, where do they come from? They come from advertisers. They come from the anti-aging industry. They come from people. We I, And think of the body image movement, right? We're, again, we have analogies here. We have examples. We know how to combat bias. We got the tools. So look at the way we've approached it around other aspects of our identity and apply that to age. I like that. I'm thinking about my younger women friends and men friends too. Um, they, they're se we seem to fall into some role traps like mentee or mother figure. And it's a little more challenging to be in a peer-based conversation. And I don't think that's coming from my side only, you know, like they, they seeing me as an individual person uh, versus a mother figure seems to be challenging for younger people. Yeah, I think it's, I think it works both ways. I think it's possibly a little harder for younger people to be free of this because, and this is not ageist. I mean, age is real. You can reference it. 
younger, the, the younger you are, the less life experience you have, right? So the less, the fewer examples you have to draw on, and perhaps the less time you've had to work in mixed age teams or travel or whatever. But yeah, roles are not our friends. I mean, I learned that. I, I have written one other serious book called Cutting Loose, Why Women Who End Their Marriages Do So Well, and it is not an anti-man book. It is an anti-patriarchy book, mm. and it does talk about the way, and I'm talking in fairly typical, there's no such thing as a typical marriage, but you know, heteronormative um, husband and wife terms, the role of husband and the role of wife do the individual people involved no favors. Roles, you know, set roles ordained by society um, are, are, they work counter to that fundamental effort that you described at the very beginning of this conversation, which is to see each individual as an individual. The other piece that comes up is the attractiveness thing. Because the society trades so much on beauty, a certain kind of beauty for both men and women, more for women, but I'm seeing it change. Like, you know, men are more and more getting it. Like they're, they're being subjected now to what was women's magazine equivalent. So they have, they're getting a lot more of that look, muscle, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you, you cease to be able to sort of trade on your attractiveness. Um, that, that seems to also be one of the biggest challenges in a woman's body as an older person. Yeah, it's, I mean, there is enormous pressure to look a certain way, which is generally, you know, young, thin, white, fit. Um, and we, you know, and, and the anti-aging piece of the beauty industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. So people spend vast amounts of money trying to get us to feel that way. I will submit that if for the purpose of the argument, if we agree that um, being sexually active might be a benchmark of whether or not you are attractive, look at your friends who are sexually active. They're not the thinnest. They're not the youngest. They're not the prettiest. They are the ones who have succeeded and it is not easy you know, it's a really incessant drumbeat, but they have beaten back this message that to be attractive, you need to conform to this punitive, expensive, impossible, unattainable norm, even when you're perfect. You know, it's not like models are happy. Models are miserable because they're too fat or they they age out of their careers at, you know, 16. I think that that's old for a model in a lot of industries and so on. So none of those messages are our friend. Everybody I know who's having good sex has transferred from a physical connection to an emotional or spiritual connection where they can just be themselves. Yeah, they've got they brought their full selves to, to bed or to the table. I can't I I wanna everyone who who is involved thinks a lot about beauty, the beauty industry. I want to recommend a fantastic uh, newsletter and um, woman named Jessica Defino. And just this morning, she has a newsletter and I tweeted this quote from it. Beauty standards are the products of patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. The And then an ellipsis. The entire concept of anti-aging is a scam. Erasing your wrinkles isn't empowerment. Those standards are not about beauty. They're about power. What would we do with those billions of dollars back? Yeah. I heard once that women have really great wardrobes in midlife and men have really great 401ks. <laughs> so it would be a very, very empowering choice to choose to accumulate capital, 
to then apply that capital into industries and and uh, charitable organizations that could move the needle for a, a more just world or a more environmentally conscious world. But if you're spending all that money on uh, staying young, you can't do that. So there's some way that it feels like that's a it's like a distraction from the things that matter. It's a way of keeping you busy with this bauble over here. Uh, maybe speak to that, sort of the trade-off on capital and, and aging. You cannot stay young, right? Everyone wakes up a day older. So, so the entire anti-aging industry is based fundamentally on self-loathing, right? You, you are, if every form of prejudice has an other, Right, you you define yourselves in in reference. You you turn a group of people into something other than yourself, and then you distance yourself from it, and their well being becomes less of a human right. The weird thing about ageism is that that other, instead of being other religion, other color, other sexual orientation, other nationality, is our own future older selves. So the entire anti ageism industry is based on fear and self-loathing like this on the delusion that if we eat enough kale, do enough sit-ups, eat enough supplements, this won't happen to us. It's going to happen to you unless you're dead. The only way to stop aging is to be dead. So it's it sets us up to fail. It hugely sets us up to compete, especially women because of this toxic focus in the culture on our appearance, right? And in which to to fail is essentially to look like you are older and it's hugely classist. All this stuff, these cosmetics, I can't believe how much women drop, uh, you know, at Sephora when I walk in. And they, a lot of them, you know, look like, you know, they're younger women who, who I don't think they all have like super giant corporate salaries. Um, you know, it is expensive. Leisure is expensive. Sushi is expensive. So when we fall for this, we also do that do so at the expense of people who cannot afford these so-called remedies. I have air quotes around remedy because it's not a problem. And doesn't require fixing. Aging is a continuum. It's a process on which we embark the day we're born. It's not just something annoying that old people do. And the sooner we can at least accept it and ideally embrace it. I know that's a tall order, but I urge you to, to learn more about aging first and foremost, because your fears are way out of proportion to the reality and the fear is really, really bad for you you know, then then we start, we step off the hamster wheel of age denial, which is, you talk about how much money we spend, think how much psychic energy we spend on worrying about, oh my God, I have a wrinkle or whatever, or what if this happens? Worry does us no favors. It's just like borrowed, there's some truism about it, you know, it's just borrowed, borrowed worry, borrowed anxiety. And the more energy and money and headspace we have to focus on things that are a lot better for us. Let's go back to, do you have a personal sort of continuum of what you would do intervention on and what you wouldn't? If it's not appearance, do you, do you have a sense of supporting or opposing the physical decline or cognitive decline aspects? What about things like that? It's completely individual. I got a really good piece of advice when I was writing my book, which is don't use the word should. And I managed not to. So I think each of us has our own strengths and weaknesses, our own things we're particularly worried about, those things we don't give a damn about. So I think the answer is completely individual. As a starting point, I recommend, 
I mean, noodle around the old school clearinghouse if you want to learn more about ageism. There's there's two minute videos and six hour books. There's everything imaginable. A lot of really short takes on ageist language, age with ageist framing. As a starting point, think about how you use the words old and young. I hear people say, I don't feel old or I, I feel young. Think about what that word means in that context. You can't be young and feeling young means is actually meaningless. What you mean usually is that you feel energetic, you feel sexy, you feel with it. I feel old usually means I don't, I don't feel old, means I don't feel incompetent, I don't feel ugly. We can feel any of those things at any stage in life. If we lose a friend, if we get a promotion, if we win the lottery, if we complete some test or some athletic event, they are not hitched to our age. So decouple age from appearance, from any metric, because again, those metrics also become totally more and more diverse over time. Some 30-somethings are couch potatoes, some 80-year-olds are running marathons. The longer we live, the less our age says about us. We ironically give age way more power than we should. You mentioned you have a lot of young friends. My guess is that you're friends with them because they're interested in what you do, or they you had a fun conversation with them at an event. Age is irrelevant. Yeah, age is not a feeling. I love this. That's great. I want to go back to this idea. I'm just noticing that there seems to be a, a moral continuum. I'm just going to say on things that are vanity, and things that are supporting your utility value in the culture. I, I have so so just think about that. Like, oh, it's okay to stay smart, cognitively sharp. It's okay to invest in your mobility so you don't become a burden on others and you can continue to work. As long as you can continue to work, you could take those supplements. You could get that that hip cartilage injection, whatever. But things that are vain. Like you should stay looking younger so that you can get a better salary and that you know, that there's something in there that is also about the transactional value of our beingness in capitalism. I'm so glad you came up with the C word, capitalism. <laughs> that That is the major propulsive to think uh, capitalism, you know, as if, if age itself is turned into a problem then we can be persuaded to buy stuff to stop it or fix it, air quotes there, you know, when aging is not a problem. It is a natural, powerful, universal process that we embark on the minute we are born. So, and also the same goes for, you know, the, the changes that accompany phys physical changes. If they are pathologized, and again, you know a lot more about menopause and perimenopause than I do. I am not saying for a minute, you don't take supplements or do take some whatever. We each need to you know, do what's right for us and follow the advice of the experts we trust. But there is an awful lot of people making money, selling stuff that has no effect whatsoever and that we don't know whether it's okay for us. And there's a lot of evidence that some of this stuff is not good for us, but it's profitable. No one makes money off satisfaction and a huge way more messages come at women than at men, although men are not far from exempt because capitalism. And the other part is that capitalism reduces the value of a human being to conventional economic 
productivity. It's very transactional. It's ugly. And the notion to, to reduce it to a very, very limited sense, you know, if someone can afford to retire and does, there's a lot of finger wagging. Think about the like, I'm keeping busy. God forbid you should hang out in your porch swing and scratch your butt because then you're not contributing. And, you know, so many older people um, do volunteer activity, which has a value of billions of dollar cash value to the economy. Most looking after or in on older people is done by other older people for free. That has value. Maybe I'm watching a grandchild so that uh, his parents can go out to work. That has value. None of this is measured, but that's only part of the argument. It is an ugly world in which the value of a person is reduced to that. So I'm really glad you brought up that excellent point. That's like useful. Being useful, being needed is so integral to belonging also. And feeling purpose. You know, so you stop working. Yeah, purpose. And and so I like that you're decoupling purpose from economic value. A lot of people go through a period right at the point of retirement or even when the children leave home of trying to reinvent their what's their next act, I guess. Uh, so what have you seen in that in that area around the next act? One of the things I learned, I knew nothing about this 15 years ago, and I encountered research that showed a long term study, um, which is very useful if you study the same group of people over a long period of time. And that even people who were completely sharp cognitively when they died had brains full of plaques and tangles that sure looked like Alzheimer's. They looked at what those, that's what I, my face looked like your face. I was like, what? So they looked at what these people had in common and what they had in common was a sense of purpose. The point I want to make is that your purpose does not have to be to start a new startup corporation at 50 or to cure cancer or to end ageism. Your purpose can be to get up in the morning and find your slippers. Your purpose can be to stay in bed and read all day. Your purpose can be to smell the roses or to you know, see what a, a, watch a younger friend achieve something. It doesn't have to be, it's a, I think it's, you know, the, the exhortation to find your passion has always irked me, partly because I've never figured out what I wanted to be when I grow up. I'm a generalist. It's like, if I knew my passion, it would find me. You're like, thanks, thanks, but no thanks. So, but a sense of purpose, we do one of the most pernicious myths about older people. And one of the few to really anger me is that we don't care about the world we leave behind. And tremendous numbers of older people, everyone cares about you know, someone who, who is younger and older. We care about our family members, community members. We, we are all invested in each other's well-being because all of life is interdependence. And if we have a purpose to support those friendships or, or keep the median strip clean or just take a walk around the block with your dog, it's all good. No judgment. Okay, so we're free to choose our purpose, and it doesn't have to be a save the world purpose. I do want to speak to this evaluation, particularly of the boomers, as being uncaring or unsympathetic. There is a sense that the economics and the politics of the country have changed so much that that particular group of people got all of these post-war boons and really had a way to start their life off in a, in a, you know, get a house, get an education in a way that from the 80s on was not available 
and that the people who are millennials and stuff just don't have it. You're looking at kids now in their 30s who are so far away from being able to afford a home because they're still paying off college debt, much less have children. We have the lowest birth rate ever in history right now. And so I think that there's been something set up in the political decision-making. And in California, they, they set a law uh, about capping homeowner taxes so that people could be protected by that. And then inflation outstripped it and the schools dropped to the 50th in the country. If you don't want to pay school taxes, don't you want the kid delivering your oxygen tank to be able to read the instructions? It is incredibly selfish and wrong to not pay school taxes, to not pay other taxes that support your community, regardless of, of what you own there or whether you have children in school or whatever. That's a personal opinion. I was born in 1952, dead center in the baby boom. I had incredible demographic good fortune. 60 years of you know, a Western American, beautiful imperialist, um, you know, economic supremacy, economic growth, and so on. The younger cohorts coming up do not have that advantage. It sucks. It's unfair. And they have every reason to envy us, but that does not make us the enemy. And when we fall for this idea, it's, you know, conflict sells papers. It's super convenient to, to blame old people, you know, for what's gone wrong or Russians or aliens or capitalists, you know, this us versus them framing. But there is zero evidence evidence that older people don't care about younger people or that younger people don't care about older people. The myth of intergenerational conflict, and I've written about this on my blog, it's searchable by topic, thischairrocks.com slash, slash blog, it's free, was invented by right-wing think tanks in the 70s to justify shredding the social safety net, which makes it so much harder for younger people in particular to get started, because as long as old people and young people are pointing fingers at each other, we don't join forces to make a you know, better world for all of us or to increase school taxes, for God's sake. So there's decent public schools for people who can't afford private school. It is the same BS that pits moms in the paid workforce against stay-at-home moms about who's a better mom instead of women joining forces to close the gender wage gap so women could choose whether or not to stay home. That is what prejudice does. It is really tempting. I get it. It is maddening to see you know, older people sitting on this accumulated wealth when you don't have a chance to get a foothold. But again, it doesn't make us the enemy. And it's always necessary to zoom out and look at the forces that benefit because it's the people in power when we are squabbling about who's more bad. I, okay, I'm going to just pause here and say, we've talked about a lot of things so far, but this one about becoming less manipulable to top line messages to believe in unity and to look at what's good for the whole is pretty foundational to all of this. It's foundational to prejudice. It's foundational to interpersonal relationships, political justice, economic justice, and really a creating a world that works for all the people who live together in it. Here, here. So becoming less manipulable is yeah, like popping your eyes open. 
Great. So your blog has tons of resources. You're right. I, I loved a lot of that stuff. I would love if, if you could take a couple minutes and talk about the book on leaving a marriage and what happens to women. I know it's an older book, but it's still like really relevant to this group of people that's listening. And I'm happy to say uh, HarperCollins brought out a new paperback, which has a new forward. And um, it's called Cutting Loose, Why Women Who End Their Marriages Do So Well. And I'll, I'll put it in context. Shocker, I wrote it because I ended my marriage after 11 years. I had two little kids. I was terrified. I thought I would, you know, never get laid again, have to go, like, start going to piano bars and, and being sad and drinking by myself. Sorry, no diss to piano bars there. And an early comment, chance comment of my attorney, she said, you know, more and more of my clients are people like you, by which he meant women who are realizing like they didn't have to stick it out. And I went home and learned in two seconds that two thirds of the divorces are initiated by women. And I was astonished. It's really readily available fact. It's always been more women than men. And I thought it was like 98% men dumping their sad old wives, sad sack wives for fertile trophy versions. And that spark is what got me interviewing over 100 women and looking at their actual lives after divorce. And were there losses? Sure. But was it better to be making a more fulfilled life on their own terms than being hostage to a marriage where they felt lonely and they didn't have an equal voice? It was better. And, it, and 20 years, I mean, writing a book is horrible. I never wanted to write another one. But then guess what happened? I started to get old. And I sort of started investigating that process. And I had the same aha point. There were all these, yes, there's scary stuff about getting old and negative stuff. But there's all these positives, right? Older people have better mental health and stability than younger people. People are happier at the beginnings and the ends of their lives. And it was like that divorce statistic. I like smacked my head in both cases. It was why don't people know these things? I was not cherry, cherry picking obscure data out of a, you know, some scientific paper that had six readers. This is floating at the top of the internet, all this stuff. We don't know that stuff about marriage because we live in a sexist patriarchy. We don't know that stuff about ageism because we live in a, and misogyny. We don't know the, know the stuff about aging because we live in a sexist, ageist, misogynist, capital, capitalist, and ageist, sorry, I'm not getting my list straight here, culture. Well, we <laughs> a lot in, of isms. A lot of isms, but in other words, zooming out, as you just referenced, Christine, zooming out to the larger fa factors at play here that benefit when, when we are set against each other that, that want us to be, you know, in marriages because, uh, you know, hetero, heterosexual monogamous marriage is super useful for capitalism. Everyone needs a, um, you know, washing machine and all the, you know, all the worker bees are competing against all the worker bees to, to do better and buy more stuff. I'm oversimplifying. I'm not an economist, but when we, when we zoom out, we see that, you know, these messages, they're not hidden from us. They're available, but they go counter to a lot of inculcation and even brainwashing that's been coming at us since we were born. And it requires a real effort to, to zoom out, to educate ourselves. But I'll tell you, once you do, it's really, really liberating. A bad relationship is a tremendous energy drain. And if you can take that energy that you're spending and navigating that and put it into your passions, your children, your work life, uh, your own well-being, your spiritual life, uh, that seems like a win. 
So I'm not surprised. And attitudes towards aging are an, a relationship with yourself. I mean, so are so many other things. But if when we are, you know, apprehensive about getting older, and again, there are things to be, you know, to be concerned about. It's not like if you, you know, take a positive attitude pill, it's all going to be great. But the fear makes us more vulnerable to exactly what we fear. The, the attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. We haven't even touched on the effect of all this on our health. So your attitude and relationship with your own future older self is incredibly important. There's a whole thing in my book about becoming an old person in training which was a phrase I appropriate. I heard it early on from a geriatrician named Joanne Lynn. And I was like, I had no idea how important it would be, but I thought, well, I guess that's what I've become. It's, it's a really just a trick of the mind. If you acknowledge that you're going to get old, the older you can be a speck on the horizon. She can be as far off as you need her to be, but acknowledge that, that you will become that person if you're lucky, rather than pretending that if you eat enough kale, do enough whatever, it's not going to happen, which we know really close to the surface is not true, right? It's a myth. It's it's fooling ourselves. Then you never get on this hamster wheel of denial that is so expensive and so corrosive and so bad for us individually and collectively. I was thinking about the reference points. The imagination often comes to, from what you've been exposed to. I had a couple of grandmothers who lived into their mid-90s and one into her you know, was early 80s, sort of more average. One of them stayed tremendously active, engaged, played games, was like the hosted people, like her place was the gathering point until the year before she died. And then there was another one who got isolated and lived alone and got cranky and resentful. And so just looking at these pol these poles of how you might do it and, and choosing which one or Earlier this year, I interviewed a woman named Beatrix Ost, who's 82 years old, and she has a new art show at the Torresiete Museum in Charleston. And, you know, at 82, she's as creative as she has been her whole career. She's dealing with big environmental themes. She's still making massive paintings. And so just to have these examples of what it might look like, uh, Stuart Brand on the masculine side, you know, he's out there creating the Long Now Foundation, which looks at things on a 10,000-year time horizon, looking at small-scale nukes and how those can be made safe and have totally clean power. Look at, you know, he's out there like really curious about life. It, it's been a non-issue. And to find people of both genders for whom it's been a non-issue and use those as reference points if you can't imagine your own life unfolding, I think that's really helpful. I tried some of those age progression things where you put your own face through a filter of like what you're going to look like at 60 and 70 and 80 and 90. And I was like, oh my God, it's my grandmother's. Like I literally saw their face, you know, and, and like meditating on that. It's almost like the Tibetan meditation on your own death, you know, in a way like, like this thing about, oh, this is happening. And instead of being afraid of it, I'm just going to sit with it. Well, that's interesting. And then what? You may, you may stay afraid of it. But just looking at it renders it less fearful, and then it becomes something you can think about, perhaps talk about. I want to make a point, two points about the examples you just gave, which are wonderful. You know, my, my bet is that the artist, whose name I don't remember, I'm afraid, and Stuart Brand were creative at, at 12, and creative at 30, and creative at 80. 
so it isn't something it was a function of who they are and you know Stuart brand for one I, i'm uh, you know has he's a white man and he's had access to a terrific education you know privilege that has helped him um you know live well and long so that's a question of let's look at look at the at the surround it's also it's really important to have those exemplars because as you say it helps connect to behaviors in older people that you admire and aspire to and also other behaviors that you don't. But I just want to to point out that those two people are outliers and that if you don't have a foundation, if you don't have a show of your own, if quote unquote, all you can do is to lead a small life. But, it, you know, in that sense, you know, perhaps not to not to go out a lot because you're mobility impaired or you can't afford it because you do have a small circle of friends. That does not mean, and I'm sure you know this from a spiritual perspective, that your life is any less meaningful or any less valuable in America. In particular, thanks to capitalism, we extol people who who exceed, who are out in the world, who are, again, productive in this way. And that is ableist and classist potentially because it advantages people who are fortunate economically and in opportunity that not everyone can be, of course, and whose lives can be just wonderful. You you are such a perceptive listener. You know what you just hit on is I preserved and targeted my core value, which is creativity and curiosity and learning. So I, I didn't like pick somebody who's like still extreme skiing at 60 or at 90, you know, or I didn't pick somebody who is still looking young and beautiful at 90. Not skydiving. All right. Or skydiving. Oh, she's still skydiving at 80. Good job. No, but it's so interesting. You, you, you caught me because the one thing I'm most afraid of losing is the example that I chose. You're not going to, you're not going to become less creative. <laughs> if you have some strokes and can only wiggle your toe, you're going to figure out a way to do something with your toe. It's that's not going to go away. Age does not take age. Even if we have severe dementia, it doesn't rob us of the characteristics that make us most individual. <laughs> and only 10% of the population gets Alzheimer's. Most of them are in their late 80s or 90s. The odds of you or me getting dementia continue to drop. This is what I mean by telling both sides of the stories. Nobody knows that. It's in the New York Times. How come we don't know that? Because capitalism, because they can sell us remedies to fix a problem that is not likely to affect any of us, but the anxiety that we will get Alzheimer's makes us more likely to get Alzheimer's. I'm just going to mention one more study out of Yale University. Again, not cherry picking some you know tiny little journal in Estonia. People with fact rather than fear-based attitudes towards aging are less likely to get Alzheimer's even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. Okay. Look up the study on my website. We're going to become fact-based. We're going to live in the moment of what our actual experience is. We're going to stop equating young and old with other feelings that, that evince the quality of life. We're going to make friends across the ages. And we're going to stay present to what's actually happening. And notice when it's our fear that is taking over. So I would like to recommend that everybody come and check out Ashton's books. I'm going to put her site and her book links in the 
show notes. And we're also going to do a giveaway on both of her books. So please uh, come on over and, and check out all of those links. I think what we'll also do is put a top 10 tips for overcoming your fear of aging and being with your own experience that are taken out of this episode, and then some links to some of the blogs that were mentioned here. So anyhow, thank you. No, this was great. Thank you. Well, I hope there's no more self-oppression and that we're all more open-minded to the exact person who's standing in front of us. If you want to check out Ashton, you can find her at This Chair Rocks on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, check out her book. We're going to do a giveaway of her book if you're listening to this on or about the day of the publication, April 28th, 2022. Uh, so go on over there and enter to win the giveaway for her book, This Chair Rocks. You can find me on Instagram at the.rose.woman or my company, Rosebud Woman, uh, where we provide beautiful, intimate, care, body care, supplements, and lifestyle products to support you through all of the ages of your life, particularly in a sexual, sensual, and reproductive joy. That's it for this week. I'd love it if you'd do me a favor. Go to lovethepodcast.com slash the-rose-woman and leave me some reviews, subscriptions, sharing, anything. Uh, we're trying to get the word out about these great guests and all the things they do. Remember, you're perfect as the day you were born. There's nothing to change. Just enjoy your beautiful being in this beautiful life. Mm -hmm.